Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even under a Biden presidency, I sense this kind of acrimony and division in the US that's just so firmly entrenched now. How do you think the role of brands has changed over the past four years, given the polarization of the country? And also, how do you see that moving forward, whether Trump or Biden end up winning? I think even if Biden wins or Trump goes back into office, people have now implemented in their mind that they need to make a change within their spaces and their corporate spaces. It can't just be that Caucasian people are good for the job. There's so many talented people out there that for some odd reason, companies never really paid attention to or even looked at. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. Well, this week, all of the United States and much of the world has been wrapped by the U.S. presidential election. The day after the election, I sat down with some of my colleagues from the BOF team and a couple of external experts in a conversation led by our chief correspondent, Lauren Sherman, to unravel what the presidential election means for the fashion industry. At the time, we still didn't know who was going to win the election, though Joseph Biden was slowly taking a lead. And even as I record this introduction now, the election still hasn't been called. But we felt it was still interesting to share this conversation with you, going inside the presidential election and what it means for the fashion industry. So instead of going inside fashion this week, we're going inside the US presidential election.
Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. I'm Lauren Sherman, BOF's Chief Correspondent, and I'm here with a really amazing panel today. We have our fearless leader, Imrad Ahmed. He is our Editor-in-Chief and Founder, Brian Baskin, our News and Features Editor, Stephen Lamar, President and CEO of the American Imperial and Footwear Association. I've been talking to Stephen for years. Great to meet him in person. And, and Sharifa Murdoch, co-owner of Liberty Fashion and Lifestyle Fairs. So today we're going to be talking about the election, which is not decided yet. The U.S. presidential election, it's still in limbo. We're not sure what's going to happen. It's looking like at 10.03 a.m. Eastern time that it's leaning towards Biden, but we're still unsure. I think thousands, if not millions of votes still need to be counted. Um, and we're just gonna kind of speak about the last few days, the team has really been talking with industry experts, executives and you know, futurists to try to figure out what the next four years mean for fashion. So let's get started. Imran, I thought we would start with you. I will never forget four years ago, around nine or 10 p.m. on election day, getting a text from you it was clear at that point that what all the polls had said, what everyone was kind of the pundits, what everyone was kind of expecting that Hillary Clinton was going to was going to take the election was not happening. And you just texted me. I'll never forget it. It's not looking good. And I realized, oh, it's very late in, in the UK and Imran's still awake. And also this isn't going the way that everyone expected. Can you talk a bit about what the, the last four years have been like? for you know globally and also how how it's affected the fashion industry in in particular yeah i mean i have to say this morning as i woke up or maybe last night as i went to bed very late it, it felt a little bit like deja vu the polls again seemed to have been way off nobody was predicting at least none of the pollsters were really predicting a race this close. And I think, you know, the whole world is watching this election, watching it play out. And maybe what isn't always clear to Americans is how important this is for the rest of us all around the world who don't get to vote in this election. And obviously, the President of the United States has historically been called the leader of the free world. And when you're electing the leader of the free world, it has impact on everybody. So, I think people around the world are watching today with the same level of attention and anticipation as many of you are in the US. So I'm, I'm grateful to you, Lauren, for asking me to comment first, because if we take a fashion industry lens on this, of course, the last four years, on the one hand, have seen a relatively strong economy. You know, the, the US economy has continued to perform reasonably well. You know, unemployment was at, you know, very, very low levels and people were spending money. And so when consumers are feeling confident in the US, that's good for the fashion industry. On the other hand, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on in and around that consumer confidence in the economy that's really put a lot of strain on the industry. You know, I, the first thing I would think about is, a, you know, Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, you know, the fashion industry has been paying a lot more attention to sustainability and being just a more responsible industry. And so when the, the leader of the free world pulls out of probably the, one of the most historic climate change pacts that the, the world has ever seen, probably the most ambitious one, along with other 
you know, backtracking against the World Health Organization, the Iran de deal that was negotiated with European partners. I think the general sense in the world is that, you know, a presidency under Donald Trump was really pulling us back as a global community, even if the American economy continued to perform well. And so as I look at the election results as they stand now, as you describe them, we're all waiting to see what happens in Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona and Nevada. And some of these states have been called, others have not been called. But I think what the fashion industry globally is looking for is one, a leader who will continue to enable the US economy to perform well in this now very, very different context that we find ourselves in in the middle of a, a global public health emergency, but then two, also to play that historic leadership role in pushing the global community forwards in terms of thinking about the biggest challenges that we in the world are facing, not least of which is the pandemic and the resulting economic catastrophe, but also the climate crisis. And so that's kind of the lens from over here in London. We're gonna go kind of policy by policy and, and talk with Stephen and Sharif about what will happen, you know, if Trump gets another four years and if Biden is the new president. But Brian, you've been covering this really closely the last couple of weeks. You've, you've written a couple of things. You edited something and worked really closely with me last night on the piece that we published late into the evening. Can you talk a bit about kind of what the last few weeks have looked like for this and what you've heard from industry insiders about how they're feeling about the election generally and what you think the different outcomes could mean overall? Sure. I think everyone's kind of had a had a split mind over how they're viewing this election. You, you hear a lot of people in the industry who, who seem to almost assume, you know, Trump was going to win, you know, sort of a carryover from 2016. At the same time, the polls all seem to show that Biden was going to win in a landslide. And then what we got last night was almost something in between where it seemed like Trump was, was doing almost a, a shot by shot repeat of 2016. And then we woke up this morning and it looks like actually things might be swinging back Biden's way. And, and even in the last you know, few minutes, we're seeing you know, the numbers definitely you know, pointing toward a Biden presidency. It's made it very hard, I think, for people to really prepare just because nobody i think is really willing to accept that you know we might be seeing an end to the trump administration in such a 180 degree shift on all the issues that we're about to get into i mean my personal take is it's probably time to start doing that just based on what the vote tallies are showing and i think that's what we can get into here great so maybe we can start with trade which is probably the biggest issue long term right i think short term there are some other things we can get into but Stephen, can you talk a bit about what the Trump administration's trade policies have looked like and how they have differed from previous administrations, not just the Obama administration, but I'm curious to know how far away it is from the, the Bush administration as well, the second Bush administration. Um, sure, and thanks for having me on the program this morning. And it's um, great to be with some wonderful um, thought leaders um, like yourself. President Trump has very strong views on trade. These are views that have, have really been unchanged going back to probably in the 80s and 90s. You know, the, those views were, I think, focused primarily on 
Japan back then, China has sort of replaced it as the target of where he kind of views the world from an unfair trade perspective. But it's really about there's a lot of unfair trade that's happening. This is, again, the, the Trump administration and President Trump's personal views. There's a lot of unfair trade is happening that others have taken advantage of the United States. And he measures things th through the trade deficit. And his tool of choice has been tariffs. And that's really, I think, been the primary changes. Well, every president has availed themselves of the various trade tools that they have to remedy unfair trade. They all, everybody likes to talk about trade deficits and is, as an indicator of, of the strength of your trade policy. Most of the previous presidents have, or at least in recent history, have not focused on it nearly as much as President Trump has. Same with tariffs. Tariffs is, has been used very judiciously in very specific cases by other presidents. President Trump has used them quite a lot. And as a result, we now see some of the largest tariff burdens that our economy has faced in a very long time. Certainly, I think in the history of everyone that's alive today probably hasn't experienced this kind of level of, of tariffs that are applied on imports. President Trump does subscribe to the view of negotiating trade agreements. In fact, he's been He's launched two trade, he concluded, well, launched and concluded a renegotiation of NAFTA, and then now has two more trade agreements that we're doing, the UK free trade agreement and the uh, one with Kenya. But again, there's there's a, a perspective that he has on that, that that wasn't really shared with his predecessors of, you know, making those trade agreements much more US focused than probably what, what we'd seen in the past. I mean, certainly the point of a trade agreement is both parties enter into it so they can negotiate better terms of trade with each other and everyone's looking out for their own interests. But that has, I think, taken on a, a very specific focus under the Trump administration. We saw that with the renegotiation of the of the NAFTA uh, to the newly branded U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, where the rules of origin for to some extent in textiles and apparel, but mostly in, for example, automobiles, there was much more prescriptive terms, much more requirements for U.S. origin um, so that it was clear to Americans, you know, how much, how they were going to see benefit as a result of that through that, through an export model, for example. How easy would it be, if, assuming Biden has different views on, on some of these tariffs and, and other restrictions, how easy would it be for him to reset everything? I mean, can he just sort of wave his hand and make it go away? Or is it sort of hard to unring the bell? Well, Politically, it's much harder than it is to actually, you know, the, the, the powers, as, as President Trump has shown, there's um, quite a lot of authority that Congress has extended. We, we just have to remember, Congress, it's up to Congress to decide tariff policy. Over the last 70 years, Congress has basically delegated that authority over the year, um, over that time to the, the office of the president. So it would be a lot easier as an instrument of foreign policy, as an instrument of economic policy for a single individual to kind of have that Again, based on a set of guidance and principles about you know, consultation with Congress, President Trump has used many of those tools probably with abandon. You know, he's, he's in some cases has done it with very little process. Other cases, there's been process, but sort of a, a, a foreseen outcome. What that shows is that the president actually has a lot of authority right now. So a President Biden could come in and I think relatively quickly overturn a lot of that. Would President Biden do that? A President Biden do that? In some cases, perhaps, but in most cases, probably not. Because, you know, if you if you just look at China, for example, I mean, a lot of a lot of the focus on trade policy right now has been on um, the U.S.-China trade relations. President Trump has made no bones about um, his view that 
that China is the chief culprit in, you know, the unfairness that that he believes goes on in U.S. trade policy. And while Vice President Biden has been um, challenging the way in which that's been carried out and has been pointing to the economic damage. Kamala Harris also did that. Senator Harris also said that in the, in the debate. They've talked about the economic damage of tariffs and the trade war and how it's hurt, for example, farmers. They haven't committed to overturn those because they probably are going to find um, that they need to keep pressure on China for a host of reasons too. And they may find it's very convenient to have those tariffs in place, or at least don't want to be seen as the you know, the new government comes in and immediately takes off tariffs. And then now you've created a perception that they have gone, quote unquote, soft on, on China. For your, the people who, who the brands that, that come to your trade shows and do business with you, you have a lot of, you know, companies outside of the U.S. coming in and visiting your trade shows, retailers. How have you seen the tariffs and Trump's protectionist stance on trade affect them directly? I think it's affected them big time. I think so many times a lot of brands would love to get, especially the brands from the U.S. and even outside of the U.S., want to get their products made from here. And because of the pricing and the strategies that have been put in place, it's impossible. So they have to go outside of the U.S. to get their products made, which China is a main it's like one of the biggest sources of where all of designers are making their clothing except for the Europeans, you know? For sure. And, and Europe has not been immune to this. Imran, can you speak a bit to how the luxury industry has reacted to, to tariffs that, that Trump has put on things in, you know, champagne, handbags, and things like that, that in the past were really felt like immune to those sorts of things because it was so important for the economy and, and keeping things moving? Yeah, I mean, having grown up in Canada, I have a long perspective on kind of the way U.S. presidents think about trade. And, you know, you go in these waves. When I was in Canada growing up, you know, there was all of this thing about lumber and steel. And, you know, I think President Trump has basically picked up on certain industries that are of strategic importance to specific countries, and he's just targeted them. So the most recent wave of tariffs that been threatened is against kind of luxury goods coming from France. And I know that there's been a kind of extended and kind of tense conversation between President Macron and uh, President Trump on how they can resolve the issue. Because usually the way these things happen is it's a tit for tat thing. So France does something and the US does something in return or vice versa. And so I think you know, right now, senior executives in the luxury industry are really thrilled with the performance of their businesses in the US. Um, there's been a massive shift of spending away from kind of hotels and restaurants towards luxury goods. And you've seen that in the results coming out from LVMH and Hermes and Caring in recent weeks. There's been, you know, one CEO told me he has not seen results like this in the US in the history of his 30 to 40 years of working in the luxury business. So something major is happening in the US right now. And I think the luxury companies in particular have been looking to the US as potentially a really important driver for the recovery of the industry. Were President Trump to be reelected and this whole talk of tariffs against the luxury industry to kind of come to the surface again, I think that would put that recovery under somewhat of a, uh, a threat. And I think that would lose, you know, the market would lose a bit of confidence. You've seen some of the stocks of Caring and Hermes and some of these other companies 
uh, go up over the past few months. And I think, you know, there's two really core economies in the luxury industry today, which drive the lion's share of revenue still, and that is China and the US. And the US remains a key plank in the recovery. So if the US recovery is somewhat threatened by any new trade policies, then that would in turn dampen the recovery that the luxury industry has been experiencing over, over the past couple of months. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how we rewound to 2008 and everybody's buying handbags again. Brian, can you talk a bit about, you know, we've been covering quite a bit this week, how President Trump has been good for fashion and corporations and consumers in some ways, and, and looking at kind of one of the big things that came out of my piece was weighing the tariffs versus the corporate taxes. And, you know, he's let up on corporate taxes, but to an investor, you know, cost of goods is is probably more important than how much taxes you pay. Can you speak a bit about, you know, how, how those two things interact and what you expect if Biden were, were to take this? Sure. I, I agree with your point about, you know, taxes versus cost of goods. However, if you look at Trump's policies as a whole, I mean, one of the knocks on him by his opponent is that they favor the wealthy. It's exacerbating inequality. These are things that we, we can have our own opinions as people. But if you're a luxury company, those are, you know, potentially quite good trends for you. If there are more very wealthy people and they have more disposable income because they're not paying taxes. And in that case, I wonder even if a tariff really dissuades them, they really want that Louis Vuitton bag, you know, from, from buying one. Um, so in that sense, you know, that Trump is, is good for, for the growth of, of the luxury business. In terms of what a Biden administration would mean for that, so much of it depends on the results of some Senate races that still haven't been called. If Republicans maintain control of the Senate, Biden's ability to do anything, you know, it's substantial with his agenda regarding corporate taxes, you know, and anything related to taxes, a lot of environmental regulations, you know, things that that might affect the industry one way or the other, he's going to be very limited in the scope of what he can do. And so it's very it's very hard to make a prognostication at this point until we we see who controls both chamber, chambers of Congress. Stephen, how has the the Trump administration reacted when industry insiders have have asked for certain things or expressed concerns how do how does the administration respond to the apparel and footwear and you know just needs and and wants from the government you know i think if you look through the tariff lens the the response has not been what we would like to have seen. I mean, you know, the president um, has really approached, again, he's not approaching the industry, he's approaching the economy, but the industry as a as a um, key part of the economy with a global outlook. You know, we, we like to say that um, you can compete in the United States, you can compete in our industry because you've got access to global suppliers and global customers. You know, 95% of all the people that wear clothes and shoes um, on the planet live outside of the United States and 98% of our product is made outside of the United States. So, so right there, those two numbers alone really demonstrate vividly how dependent we are on you know, global customers and global suppliers. And when we take that information into the Trump administration, there's the political level and then there's the career level and the career level, the people that we've been dealing with for a lot of administrations, I mean, they understand the arguments, the political level, they've got really a different perspective that they're bringing into it. And that different perspective is 
even though you are employing, in our case, 4 million Americans um, in the United States, because you've got these global supply chains, these global value chains, they're asking, how come you're not employing more Americans? Because if you were doing everything in the United States, you would be employing more Americans. And we politely point out that it doesn't work that way. If you employ, if you bring everything back in, then our ability to, to generate the kind of jobs we do would actually be constrained because we are you know, rely on our own comparative advantages. They don't look at it from that perspective. They don't look at it from the same perspective of how these supply chains work. When they make policy decisions, I think a lot of times they're they're frustrated that the supply chains can't pivot on a dime and change on a dime. And of course, you know, COVID um, has been a dramatic example of how supply chains can pivot on a dime, you know, but we've seen that with, with tariff policy. We've seen that with some of the other policies that they've been, that they've been doing, which is that you need time. Now, Sometimes we're able to communicate that perspective that we can absorb this change, but we need time. You look at the USMCA, for example, it's a great example. NAFTA was a very successful trade agreement. Trump administration had a different perspective on it, and they sought some changes, very few changes in our industry, but there were some. And some of those changes were very important. They were very significant. And we said, look, we can absorb, we don't want these changes, but we can absorb them, but you've got to give us time to reconfigure our supply chain so they can absorb those those changes so then we can become compliant that way. It's a, a very tough learning process. And, you know, we, we keep trying to, again, consistently make our points um, and try to get them across. Is the idea of reshoring, is that even, is it even possible to go back to what the Trump administration might want in terms of how much we're producing in the U.S. versus abroad? That's a great question. And you have to sort of look at it from, I think, a couple of different perspectives. One is, you know, we, we don't actually use the term reshoring because that implies that stuff that left is coming back newsflash. Stuff that left is never coming back. We don't want it to come back. We want new stuff to come up. We want to create the new jobs of the future. So we, we actually call it new shoring. It's a, it's a acute term, which I don't think has taken off yet. So hopefully now it'll take off now that he's, he's got more, more listeners here. But the, the concept is that, and there is a lot of work in our industry being done to build the business case for producing more in the United States, whether it's quick response, whether it's sustainability, whether it is local for local or some combination of all these, certainly the the e-commerce explosion in the last couple of months, again, because of of speed to getting to the consumer paves the way for perhaps a stronger business case for producing more stuff either in the United States or locally, because you're producing perhaps smaller lots and things like that. So there, there, there definitely is a lot of work being done on that. You know, is stuff going to leave China and come to the United States? No, we don't have the capability, the capacity, the skills to do that. I would argue a lot of those jobs, no one's going to want to work in that that part of the industry in the United States. You know, that's that's just not something that occurs here um, at that level. There is a lot of great manufacturing that's done, but not at that scale and scope um, that occurs in other parts of the world. And then the other thing that that a lot of folks don't realize, and, and I, I threw that four million number out earlier, is that when you look at an imported, say, garment, you know, a pair of pants, about 75% of the value of that product is attributed to the United States. And we've done a number of studies on this. You can back this up through publicly correlated data as well, that, you know, as you, as you start a product's, you know, migration from, say, concept to consumer, the value that's, that's attributed to that product's development at the beginning 
and at the end tends to be the higher value jobs, you know, whether it's at retail distribution, um, design, compliance, you name it. The actual manufacturing part, that's where the, the lowest value tends to be added to the product. We actually um, have, a, have an economic term they call the small curve, which is, you know, as you, as you go along in time, high value, then you go to low value, then you go high value again. So you get this, this parabola, which then becomes the small curve, right? And so we're trying to invite policymakers to say that, you know, trade policy, the be all and end all isn't about, you know, it, it's about a lot of things, but isn't about manufacturing per se. Manufacturing jobs are phenomenal. They're great, but so are quality control jobs or so retail jobs or so all the other jobs that exist throughout the supply chain. And so if you're looking at how do you create economic security consumer opportunities and jobs through the supply chains. If you look at it through a manufacturing lens, you're really going to do the economy a disservice. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts, and not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, uh, pure bliss. 
Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We could talk trade for the entire hour, but I, I want to move on to another topic that has, has come to head during this period, during the last four years, and the rises of the corporation as you know public leader and corporate social responsibility and this idea that consumers really want corporations to kind of stand for something and speak to the issues that they are concerned about. Sharifa, as as someone who, who works with a lot of different fashion businesses and also sees, observes the consumers changing behavior, how do you think the role of brands has changed over the past four years given you know, the, the polarization of the country and, and also how do you see that moving forward, whether Trump or Biden, you know, end up winning that? So I think that it's really funny. The last four years, my experience just in general has been, I've always been in a Brown leader, right? I've always owned my own company, but I think the one thing that Trump did do was bring out the information. And when I say the information, it's about the views that people haven't been looking at. They haven't been looking at and paying attention to all of these big corporations and who are at the helm of them. And why aren't we using certain people for certain jobs? And why are certain people only used in a certain level of a certain job? And I think that that's what one thing that Trump did open up a lot of people's eyes to say is like, look, there there is a lack of brown and other color people sitting at the helms of these different businesses. And it's been an interesting, interesting conversation across the board for so many of my friends, because I think even if Biden wins or Trump goes back into office, people have now implemented in their mind that they need to make a change within their spaces and their corporate spaces. It can't just be that, and excuse my language on this panel, that Caucasian people are good for the job. It's just not that's the case, right? There's so many talented people out there that for some odd reason, companies never really paid attention to or even looked at because they felt that, especially within the fashion space, that you had to look a certain part or play a certain part. It just continues to go on. And I think that no matter who wins, that that is gonna always be in people's mind. And now there is going to be a microscope on all companies, which I'm really happy about because I want people to get the opportunity and the chances that they never got to kind of showcase what they really can do within those spaces is on given the chance. It's a really interesting way to, to put it. Imran, what have you observed with these changing corporations? You have been covering these companies for you know 15 years or so. What, what have you seen change about how they, you know, obviously there's more transparency and as Sharifa mentioned, companies are doing a lot of inward examination about representation within their businesses. Do you think that they feel a responsibility to be a public leader if they're a public company or if they're just a really big company? You know, when when you were talking to Sharifa just now, I was thinking back to the first real sign of what the Trump presidency was going to be like. I'm thinking back to just after his inauguration speech, which followed that America first um, narrative. And then shortly after we had the, the Muslim ban at the airports and we had people protesting in the airports. All of this happened very quickly after Trump took on the presidency. And I remember sitting down with our team back then and seeing you know leaders from other big corporations uh, throughout the United States speaking out against the ban because it was clearly a discriminatory illegal ban. 
based on people's religion. And, you know, the fashion industry tended to stay very silent. You might recall then that we put together a little program called Tied Together to kind of motivate the industry to, to kind of speak out against. And it turned out the industry was more than happy to show their solidarity with people who were being discriminated against through images and in other ways. But, you know, I think if I, if I look back to then January, you know, I guess that was January, 2017 and where we are now, almost four years later, I feel like the landscape for corporations as they navigate these kinds of issues has completely changed. And for companies to sit on the sidelines now is seen as really just being complicit in extending and perpetuating systems and structures that are, you know, unfair, that are unequal, that are racist, that are, you know, just generally propagating systems that no longer resonate with, you know, younger consumers who, you know, they want to support and engage with companies that share their values. And they want to engage with companies that are able to speak out on those values. So in the last four years, I feel like we've seen a dramatic shift from kind of the tendency to want to stay kind of neutral and not take a position to actually feeling an obligation. Even if you look at this, this campaign, more companies over the past you know, six months as the election campaign really heated up, they were much more involved, uh, much more getting involved, not necessarily in saying vote for Trump or vote for Biden, but saying get out and vote. You know, and so, yeah, I think I think the landscape's completely changed in that regard. And I think as we look ahead to the future, regardless of who's the president, Biden or Trump, um, that's one longstanding shift that's happened, I don't think is going away. Brian, I'm curious to know from you how you see it developing further. We had this conversation the other day that if Trump had not been elected, that perhaps all of these these shifts in, in the way corporations communicate with their customers may have not been as extreme. Do you think that, you know, it, it sounds like even if Biden does win, this isn't going to be, this is, it definitely is not a landslide. And it's definitely showing that this nation is even more divided maybe than it was four years ago. How do you think corporations and, and brands, you know, big and small will continue to show that, that they care and that, that they have, you know, skin in the game? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that the panel has said so far on this, that none of this is going away and that, and that companies, consumers see companies playing a different role in society and on these issues in particular than they did in 2016. How, however, I do think it's interesting that, you know, Imran pointed to the Muslim ban as a real galvanizing moment and a Biden administration isn't going to be providing those flashpoints with the same regularity. There will be those flashpoints in the wider culture but there, there won't anymore be this sort of central enemy, you know, for lack of a better word, that people are going to be rallying against. And I, I think it creates, you know, opportunities and challenges for companies and for activists and for, you know, consumers who are just interested in these issues, you know, to, to, to maintain momentum on, on some of these topics when maybe the president isn't, you know, stoking those, those fires every day. I, it's going to be interesting to see sort of where where we head on this. That being said, Brian, I think given the polarization that Lauren's talking about, you know, even under a Biden presidency, I just see this, I sense this kind of acrimony and division in the U.S. that's just so firmly entrenched now 
that maybe, you know, you know, if Biden were to win, that would be great, but he will be hamstrung probably by the Senate. You know, a lot of the things that need to get done, this whole Washington thing doesn't seem like it's going to be, you know, clean and simple from here either. I agree with Imran. I think that it's not going to change quickly. I think that it's going to take time. And I think people need to understand that if Biden does win, I need for people to really understand he can't just turn on a light and turn it back off. Like all that Trump has done within the last four years, it's not going to be simple and it's going to take time. And I just hope that people can wait and be patient. I, I personally think Biden winning in a very close election helps highlight that and is going to keep it front and center in a way that a landslide, like when I talk, when we were talking, Lauren, the polls were showing a potential landslide. And I think a lot of people might have patted themselves in the back after that and said mission accomplished when that would yeah. not have been the case. And nobody is saying that this morning. The division in this nation has never, never been clearer and, and what to do about it is also not so clear. So it does feel like more corporations, people are going to look to corporations to to give them answers on that potentially. So the there are and Lauren, can I can I jump in on that if I can? So um, I actually agree with everything that the, the other panelists have said. I think the point I'd make is I, I do think that, you know, again, if we're looking at a potential Biden um, presidency, and I keep saying potential because, you know, we're still waiting for all the results to come in, is that, you know, there, there really are two areas of immediate action that a, we still need to see some activity over the next couple of weeks and months, but even in the next year, it's still going to be the, the first two orders of business. And one is going to be, you know, keeping our economy intact until it can sustain itself um, through the various stimulus and relief packages that people are talking about. And the other one is managing COVID, um, the COVID health crisis better uh, until we can get a, a vaccine. Those are the two things. And, and I think a President Biden can use those two points as uniters to really try to heal the nation, to really try to kind of get us forward. And I, when I talk about heal the nation, you can look back over the last four years, but you can even look back over just the last you know, eight or nine months. And we've gone through um, incredible challenges. And there'll be an opportunity, I think, for uh, uh, President Biden to be able to, to make a lot of headway in those two areas and bring people together. To the other point about um, the role of corporations, absolutely. I think corporations have learn to find their voice uh, a lot more. That's been going on for a while, but you've certainly seen that accelerate over the last four years and, and certainly over the last year as people have encouraged um, political engagement to go out to vote. They've talked about a wide variety of causes, whether it's sustainability, gun control, you name it. And I think there is absolutely a role for corporations to continue to, to speak out, to continue to model and continue to improve themselves. You know, there's a lot of places where corporations haven't done a good job. And they need to, you know, really shine the light on themselves and figure out where those places are and do them better. And that's a process of continuous improvement. And I think that the good news is I think we've seen that accelerate. You know, what's really interesting, though, Stephen, as I was watching CNN last night and the exit polls were coming through and they were kind of splitting out the sentiments of the kind of Biden supporters and the Trump supporters, they cared about completely different things. So the Biden supporters cared number one about racial inequality and number two about the managing the pandemic whereas the trump supporters were all about the economy and crime and safety and so it's almost like 
even those issues that we think could be unifying, people are in these two camps are just looking at them so differently. I found it astounding that in the middle of a global health emergency, unlike anything we've seen in a hundred years, that for the Trump supporters, I think it was 3% or 5% of them thought that that was the most important thing. It was absolutely astounding to well, me. Emma, you have to remember. Yeah, no, it's- Sorry, it's, see, it's, I was gonna say, I, you have to remember, Trump honestly didn't even believe in Corona in the beginning. So like, I would continue to think even if he got it or not, that it doesn't matter. And when we talk about if Trump or Biden wins, if Trump wins, I can see um, opening back up the country as if nothing is going on because it doesn't exist. It's unreal. Meanwhile, there's like 100,000 cases exactly. a day. I mean, the whole thing, the way it hope all played out, the cases peaked right as election happened. I'm like, who's going to vote for oh, this man? we're very then, close. Um, it's crazy when you look at the map, I'm like, wait a minute. You would never think after all we've been through within the last couple of months, you will never think they'll be like, oh, no, he didn't handle this correctly. But no, there's people out there that still believe. And I listen, I get it. No shots to them. They still believe. Yeah. And I think that's a good point is that, Brian, you made this point. If it had been sort of a landslide election and folks might have said, we won, it's now our turn to go in and reverse everything from the last four years. And while I'm not going to comment on very spe specific policies over the last four years, I think that approach generally is what gets us into trouble. This concept that we've now won, so we're going to undo everything that the last people did. And then four years from now, you're now inviting the people to come after you and do the exact same thing and just keep going back and forth. And we need someone to really steer us down the middle and bring in perspectives. So Sharifa, those people that believe this isn't a big problem, we need to bring them in and be, be part of the conversation. And I think that gets back to this concept of inclusiveness. You really got to bring everybody yeah. back in. And if you don't, you're going to end up with results that are going to leave a lot of people disaffected, a lot of people unhappy, and, and that's not going to be agree. good for anybody. The final thing I wanted to talk about was the pandemic and also consumer confidence right now. We've seen consumer confidence in the U.S. plummet during the pandemic. The last couple of months, it started to creep up again. What I've heard from several analysts is that this fourth quarter, regardless of who wins, they believe that consumer confidence will be up because there will be promise of a no matter what, there's going to be either promise of stimulus or a stimulus package to do with their discretionary income. Even if it's significantly reduced, they don't have anything else to do with it but to buy stuff. So this may be a very, very successful holiday season. What do you all think about that? Do you think that consumer confidence, everyone's saying that Biden brings stability, Trump is instability. If Trump is, is reelected, does that consumer confidence start to wane once again? Or are all these other factors mean that at least for the next couple of months, buying of sweatpants and leggings and stuff will, will keep up. Stephen, curious to know from your perspective, given that you're working with a lot of different companies who want certain things from, from these administrations. You're absolutely right to talk about consumer confidence. Um, you know, we are a consumer-driven economy, and, and when the consumer is is healthy and strong and resilient, the economy is healthy and strong and resilient. I mean, that tends to be sort of a very close parallel that we've seen for a number of years, and it's certainly been the case over the last number of years. I don't know if consumer confidence goes up or down based on whether it's a, a Biden victory or a Trump victory. I think it goes up or down based on whether or not people are perceiving that we have a path forward, right? So if there is a, you know, for example, if there is a Trump victory, President Trump um, gets reelected, you know, that could 
unlock some conversation and cooperation for a very productive lame duck session. One of the things that we talk about sort of generally in politics is that lame duck sessions tend to be more popular if there is a status quo election. Again, I'm not advocating for this. I'm just sort of explaining kind of how this tends to work. So if we think the House is going to, well, I think everyone knows the House is going to stay Democrat. If the Senate stays Republican and if President Trump is reelected, that is a status quo election. That means everyone can kind of go back to the roles they were in before, but without the distraction of the election. And so does that mean they can now get back to governing and they can now put aside the petty fights and actually get stimulus done, get this done, get this done? Perhaps COVID becomes less politicized. I, I don't know. I'm just saying that there is a, a definite scenario where that occurs. And if that happens, consumer confidence, I think, continues to go up because people see that our leaders are coming together and trying to solve, work together to solve these crises. You can also make the same argument about what might happen with a with a Biden victory too, where president comes in, vice president comes in, lays out a decisive vision. It's one of healing, of inclusiveness. Perhaps that's a little bit longer because he doesn't come into office until January 20th. But again, you know, consumers see that and say, wow, we've had a fairly disruptive year and four years, and now maybe we're going to have a path forward. And again, it's it's about, you know, are you involving all of those folks as, as part of the process? So, but I do think at the end of the day, the point that we're trying to make, especially today, is look, the campaign is over. It's not time to get back to governing. It's time to kind of put away all of that, all those distractions and do these two things, solving the stimulus issues and making sure we can manage COVID until we can get a COVID cure in place. Stephen, I think that's a really interesting point in there because it does pre-assume that the election result is accepted by all the parties. And with the razor thin margins that we're talking about in Wisconsin and Michigan and other states, I think the worst case scenario is that there is no clear outcome and as Trump has threatened to do, he will take it to the courts. And we have this extended period where everyone's focused still on who won the election, not how are we going to get our, ourselves out of this economic and public health crisis. And so I don't know what's going to happen. But as I was thinking about the various scenarios that could play out with the election, for me, the worst case scenario was a really, really close election, because I think the more time either the Trump group or the Biden group or both get distracted from the core issue at hand, which is like, solving the issues that you just mentioned. And we're all focused on trying to figure out, well, who really won and recounts and getting the Supreme Court involved and who knows what else is lying ahead of us. I think that's the biggest risk. Hopefully that's not what happens. And, you know, we have this peaceful transfer of power that's been part of the American democratic tradition for centuries. I hope that's what happens. But, you know, with the election result as close as it is, I don't think we can rule out an extended and protracted period of uncertainty around the outcome of the election itself. Well, Imran, I, I couldn't agree more. I think if you do have this protracted set of legal challenges, and actually there already are some legal challenges, some were filed yesterday and, and even before, as long as those continue to hold the results up and really cast doubt into both who won and if and if either candidate is, is beginning to push that doubt narrative, that's going to hurt us. And that's going to hurt us as a country. It's going to hurt us as an economy. You know, uncertainty is a, is a job killer. Uncertainty is going to keep people away from doing the healing that they need to do. And 
And again, one of the things that you've seen a lot of people come together, AFL-CIO and the Chamber of Commerce, not often on the same side of things. Yesterday, they put out a very strong statement talking about the need to come together and make sure that you know all the votes are counted, the process is, is respected. That's what everybody increasingly, I think, needs to be doing over the next couple of days so we can get a fair, accurate, complete count, strong democratic traditions, then begin to describe how we're going to go forward. And, and we should be we should actually be celebrating the fact that we've had phenomenal voter turnout. I mean, think about this, you know, all the challenges that we've had all year long. Right. We've had incredible voter turnout. Hundred year high is what I what I read this morning. That's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. And wouldn't it be wonderful if if that could be the success story that we can go through? I hope that's what becomes kind of how we remember this election by. Sharifa, what do, what do you think about that? No, I I was agreeing with Stephen. I was like really excited at the end when he said that because it's true. I think one thing that this year has shown us is that we all we all can come together and it is possible. When we talk about spending for the fourth quarter, I as an events coordinator, I think about the first quarter and the second quarter of 2021. And it just makes me a little nervous depending on who gets elected if we don't get the stimulus package, if in unemployment does run out. Those are the things that go through my mind sitting in you know the United States. But when Steven said that he's 100% right with the voter turnout, like just to just see the lines, that excited me. That gave me hope. And I think that that gave a lot of people hope, no matter who wins, that we all did come together and we came together for a greater cause on this day and this year. And it's going to be very memorable. So that's it. Brian, I am curious to hear from you in the coming days and weeks. What do you think our team is going to be kind of tracking when it comes to all of this, depending on if we if we know who is the president in the next few days or it takes months, maybe? Like that we discussed, it's consumer spending over the holidays and that is going to be influenced by people's confidence in the future, which will be influenced by how this election plays out. And if consumer spending is strong, we might see a pretty quick recovery, you know, maybe not as fast as what we've seen in China, but it makes me pretty optimistic about next year. If it's weak, we might start to see that wave of bankruptcies that we were starting to fear, you know, way back in the spring and that you know, a lot of brands have been holding on and just hoping, okay, this is all going to end soon and things will go back to normal. And, you know, that, that there's a potential for that to happen here if, if, you know, with this election, but we just don't know. And I think we'll find out in the next few weeks. How hopeful are you, Imran? I'm genuinely, I honestly don't know. I feel cautiously optimistic, but, you know, this has been just such an unpredictable year that every time I feel like we're finding our way out of it. Something else happens. And so in the greatest year of the greatest uncertainty that I've ever experienced in my lifetime, I think it's dangerous to make any, you know, firm predictions. But I, you know, you know, going back to what Sharifa and, and Stephen were saying, I think having, you know, a hundred, more than a hundred million Americans come out and vote in advance of the election, what's clearly going to be a record turnout. I mean, Hopefully, this is a turning point. Hopefully, this was the like the nadir of this past four years. And, you know, with a pandemic and a populist president and, you know, an economy in the doldrums and racial inequality kind of all in the forefront of our minds right now, hopefully we'll look back at this moment where everything started to get better. Thank you for that. Still, still encouraging. 
And I think that's it for today. I want to thank Sharifa, Stephen, Brian, and of course, Imran for joining us. And thank everyone who signed in. I'm sure you've all been, you're very tired. You haven't been sleeping much, so we appreciate it. If you have any further questions or ideas for panels, feel free to email me on firstname.lastname at businessoffashion.com. And I just want to thank the BOF Live team for putting this together. We really appreciate it. And Thanks to everyone and have a really good day. Fingers crossed we get some answers. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <laughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.